Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. We're starting our Advent series leading up to Christmas. If you don't know what Advent is, we're going to talk about it in a little bit. But Isaiah 11 is a well-known prophecy that uh, fits this period in kind of the church calendar. It's a prophecy about Jesus, and I think it has a lot to say to us. So I want to read through it and uh, point out a few things that we're going to talk about. So if you'll read this with me, here's what it says. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Just real quick, because that sounds a little strange, that's actually about Jesus. So the stump of David's family, David was kind of the George Washington of Israel. He was the OG, he was the original king, uh, the guy that everybody talked about and looked back to. And what had happened in Isaiah's time is that they had just been soundly taken over by the Babylonian Empire. And so they are no longer, they no longer have their own royal family. So it's like that tree had been cut off and all that's left is a stump. And so God's saying here that out of that stump that used to be a source of pride, something new is going to grow. And it's going to be a new branch that looks different. And he's talking about Jesus And then he tells us what the character of Jesus looks like. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. One breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Uh, Verse 6, In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together and the leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear and the cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, and the baby will play safely near the hole of the cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to the world." And the nations will rally to him in the land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time and bring back the remnant of his people. This phrase in that day is pointing not to when Jesus comes the first time, which we've already seen happen, but it's pointing to when Jesus comes the second time, which we're looking forward to. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. Just like beautiful language, peace-filled, and then listen to what happens. Then at last, the jealousy between Israel and Judah will end. 
They won't be rivals anymore. And they will join forces to swoop down on Philistia to the west. And together they will attack and plunder the nations to the east. They will occupy the lands of Edom and Moab. And Ammon will obey them. And the Lord will make a dry path through the gulf of the Red Sea. And he will wave his hand over the Euphrates and send a mighty wind to divide it into seven streams so it can be easily crossed on foot. He will make a highway for the remnant of his people, the remnant coming from Assyria, just as he did long, did for Israel long ago when they returned from Egypt. So it goes from talking about Jesus' character to this like beautiful, peace-filled animals, all like cuddly and, and laying together, to all of a sudden plundering and attacking. It's kind of spastic and all over the place. What's going on here? So Alec Matir, he's a theologian. He wrote about this chapter. He said, when the, when the prophet brought the message of royal hope to Judah, the dawning light of the birth of the king was seen against the back, background of the darkness of sin and death engulfing the people. The dawning light of the birth of the king against the background of darkness. It's a pretty stark difference that's going on here. There's, you can see the light because it's so dark. You know, I mentioned that it's the start of Advent. And what is Advent? Uh, Tish Harris and Warren wrote that for Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth. That light has come into the darkness, and as the Gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it. But Advent bids us first to pause and to look with complete honesty at that darkness. Advent invites us to look at the darkness. If we're being honest, I think every single one of us realizes that our world is dark. Not all parts of it, thankfully, but there's plenty of it out there. There's people still starving to death, even with all of our food uh, systems set up. People are still starving to, the, to death. In different parts of the world, people die from things that you and I would get medicine for today. There's Stories and stories and stories of abuse of innocence happening. And you don't have to go very far to be able to find a new story about it. Violence and the threat of violence are weapons that are used daily by world leaders against complete and total innocence. Evil can be seen throughout society, it's not hidden. It's in full view and full color right in front of all of us. And unfortunately, I can't escape it completely. I have my own things that I struggle with, as do you. Brokenness is all around us. Darkness is around. We should be able to readily admit that things are not as they should be. The world isn't the way that God wants it to be all the way. But in order to recognize the light of Jesus, we need to be able to acknowledge how dark it actually is. 
Because if we pretend that it's not dark, guess what? You're never going to see where Jesus is showing up. You're never going to see where he's breaking in because you're putting on glasses that make you think that it's just bright everywhere. We don't obsess over the darkness. We don't give the darkness power that it shouldn't have. But we also don't pretend that it's not there. If we pause and acknowledge it, then we have a chance of seeing the light of Jesus breaking in. And that's what the season of Advent gives to us. The word Advent means arrival. And it's talking not just about the arrival of a baby 2,000 years ago, which did happen, in which we remember every Advent season, every Christmas season. We remember that Jesus came and became human and lived among us in the most like fragile and in small and innocent way possible by becoming a baby and then growing up and going that path. But we're not just looking at that one time. We're also pausing and we're saying, what about when he returns? Can we look ahead to when that's going to happen? To when Jesus returns and all is made right. And so we remember one arrival and we cry out with desperation for the second one. Because Advent gives us this space for those of us who are in darkness, to be looking for the light. And Isaiah tells us where to look. He says, in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. You can turn on the lights to noise. In that day. In that day is a very Adventy phrase. It points to this season. And it says, in that day, things are going to be different. You remember what it it says is going to be different? It says that wolves and lambs are going to lie side by side, that leopards and baby goats, lions and calves led by a little kid, uh, cows and bears, babies and snakes. In that day, things are going to look a lot different. That would be a pretty unique picture if we were to see it. Prey and predator all together in the same spot. Alec Mortier, again, he says that natures are transformed in that day. The point is not simply togetherness, but identity. The reference to their young shows that the transformation is permanent heredity. I love that. Let that sink in. The reference to the young shows that the transformation is permanent heredity. When Jesus returns the second time and he brings salvation to our world, darkness will cease to exist. It won't just be shown. There won't be a little bit of light breaking in, but it will be completely decimated, gone, finished. And it's not because we'll be ignorant of the darkness that's around us. It's not because we'll be naive and just following Jesus with our little happy faces on. And and it's not because we're going to make a a group decision that we're all just going to be better, gosh darn it, and make it happen. It's because he's going to transform something at a level that can't be undone. It's something deeper. The restoration of all things changes our DNA. How about that for something to look forward to? 
It changes how we're wired. Our babies, after that point, won't come out expecting evil because it won't be a thing to expect anymore. Verse 8 says that the baby will play safely near the hole of the cobra. What this sense is showing us is, is, is something that's not just about you and me being transformed, but something kind of cosmically being changed at a deep root level. It's of complete and final end to evil. With a baby playing with snakes, the picture that's being thrown out there is from Genesis chapter 3, where after Adam and Eve sinned, and the snake, a.k.a. Satan, uh, tricked them into sinning, uh, that God gives consequences because sometimes consequences are necessary. That's what we have to tell our kids, right? Uh, When you give them a consequence. Uh, And so God gives the consequence to a snake, and he says, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild, You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Between your offspring and her offspring, a baby and a den of snakes. If a baby can play safely by snakes, that something has been changed at a cosmic level. Something is done that can't be undone. Evil is no more. Which is beautiful, right? Do you guys long for that? After, like, if you turn on anything right now, you're going to see evil, right? You're going to see stories from the Gaza. You're going to see stories from Ukraine. You're going to see stories of abuse of various different sorts by people in power. You're going to find it everywhere. Evil completely obliterated, finished. But after all that peaceful language, what comes next? Violence. What's going on? Like the language that's put here is words like attack and plunder and occupy. Those are not good words. When we talk about occupying, that's a very like relevant language right now in our world and what's going on in different parts of our world. So how do we reconcile this picture of peace with the, the picture of, of almost like violence and war that's being given here at the end? How do we make those two coexist? Because that's what we always want to do, right? You read stuff like that and you're like, oh man, I got to figure this one out because I know if my friend reads this, they're going to be like, Stephen, I told you this stuff was a bunch of baloney. Like there's no way that can work together. You know, like how do I make this successfully coexist together? Here's what I think. I don't think we should try and make it coexist. Because I think that the picture of war that we have in our minds is not the same thing that's being put out in the rest of Isaiah chapter 11. And here's why. Because of who's leading the attack. So if you look at who's in front... 
Who's leading the way? You might start to see something different. Who's in front? It's Jesus. Jesus, who Isaiah calls here the salvation bringer. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace is leading this attack. So is Jesus kind of a Jekyll and Hyde, two-faced? Somebody whose uh, words don't match his actions? Is is that what we're being put put in front of us here? Is he warlike and peace-filled at the same time, which doesn't coexist? No. I don't think that's the case at all. And if you believe that, and you believe what Isaiah is telling us, then... This, I think, is the only way that we can go. That if the Prince of Peace is leading the attack, then the attack must look a lot different than we expect it to look. So what if an attack led by Jesus, what would it bring? What would it bring to the people who were experiencing it? What if it looks like this? What if it looks like joy? Joy because the people who, after years of oppression by bad dictators and bad leaders, finally see that they're going to be led by somebody who will actually stick to what it is that he says. They see that a good king is actually the one who's coming. What if it looks like relief? Relief to those who have been made poor by rulers who just go, take, take, take all of a sudden are going to be led by a ruler who gives freely. What if it looks like hope? Hope that after years of hopelessness due to war, after cycles of seeing family and friends and neighbors die because some other person wants power, that there's actually a change and that they're going to be led by somebody who doesn't do that any longer and ends the endless cycle of war. Would you want to follow the Prince of Peace into that type of a battle? Is that something that lines up with the character of Jesus? What does it look like for the Prince of Peace to lead the attack? I think it looks like a pacifist wearing armor which is a funny and kind of backwards visual if you think about it. It's not just the end result that's good, but the things that he arms us with don't have the same effects as we think that they might because he's protecting us with his character. And I was thinking about this this week and I was reminded of Ephesians chapter 6 in the armor of God that Jesus tells us, or that Paul rather, tells us that Jesus gives to us. Uh, and this picture of what it would look like to follow the Prince of Peace into war. So let me read Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 18 to us here. Here's what it says. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on all of God's armor so you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy at the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm, so stand your ground. Put on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and in every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in all your prayers for all believers everywhere. Uh, throw your hands up if you've heard these verses read before or you've read them. It's very common. Now throw your hands up if you've struggled with the visual <laughs> that is put out there because it feels a little bit foreign to us. Anybody willing to admit it? I'll admit it. Growing up, I grew up in a church uh, that enjoyed a warlike mantra, we'll say. And so it was very common to see them uh, grab the, the armor and either this, this childlike stuff and, and force the kids to put it on. And so we would have to wear this stuff and like march around, you know, because this is what you do when you're following Jesus. Uh, or, oh, there we go. Uh, it's, it's not sized. I don't know why. Um, or they would have fake swords. This is real life. This is real story right here. Not, not like this, but like bigger ones with words written on it. And they would be like, uh, uh, taking down the devil, like uh, throughout the service. And so growing up, I was given this as the image in all of its goofiness of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I struggled with that. Can you understand why? It felt weird. This doesn't look like Jesus to me. This looks like, to throw a little like Christian analogy, looks like David putting on King Saul's armor. It looks wrong. It just doesn't fit. Why would I do this? And is Jesus the like violent, like, you know, sword killer sort? Like that doesn't line up with what I read in the Gospels. And so growing up, whenever I heard these verses, I was like, I pictured this, and I was like, peace, I'm out. Because this does not fit. It just felt off. So when I was reading Isaiah chapter 11, and I came across this, and I started thinking about this armor, I thought, what would it look like to be armed with something that looks a little bit more like Jesus. What is Paul actually telling us about here? And I was struck because I think if we dig into the actual thing of what Paul's telling us that this looks like, 
it has power to us that maybe by looking at that childish medieval setup doesn't have any power for us. So what I want to do is I want to kind of reclaim this visual that Paul gives us and allow it to sink in that this is what we're being encouraged to take on. And so, Dave, if you want to throw up the the picture of the armor there and just leave that up for me. Uh, We're going to put on, he says, the top thing is the helmet of salvation. And what salvation means here is hope of a coming kingdom. Saying, protect your head, your brain, with hope of what Jesus is going to bring. And we need hope, right? Anybody in, our, in this room who is in high school knows that you need hope and that you know what it feels like to have the pressure of our current academic and college system bearing down on you. You know, you got to get the right grades, the right test scores. You got to get all the scholarships due to sports or uh, music or, or whatever it would be. Uh, you have to choose the right college because all of us who are adults know that if you choose the wrong college, that your life's going to fall apart. Not actually what happens. Why do we tell 17 year olds that and force this down their throat? We put so much pressure. So if you're in high school, here's my encouragement. Put on hope instead of the junk that we're trying to put on you. Have hope that Jesus has plans for you that are better than anything that you would have for yourself anyway. And that you don't have to create that yourself. To the overanalyzers and those prone to anxiety, how about we cover our heads with hope instead of just saying, I just can't control it. It's just too much. I just can't deal with it. How about if we actively put on hope and allow that to sink into our brains and our thought processes and allow that to change us? You know, I had the wonderful pleasure of having an opportunity to live this out this week, which is always fun when Jesus does that, when you're preaching. Um, And I had a, like, ridiculous migraine on Wednesday that started affecting my stomach and I couldn't keep meds down and it was really, really, it was bad. Um, And about two hours into it, when I can't do anything but lay down, I remembered the day before when I was studying this. I was like, okay, Jesus, (laughs) please help. Like, help me to put on hope in the middle of feeling just completely wrecked and destroyed and unable to think. It didn't cure anything immediately, but I am certain that inviting him in changed the course of that day a lot more than just continuing on in the thought process that I was in. Then we're told to put on the body armor of righteousness. Righteousness is integrity and purity of life. Protect your heart with integrity by reflecting Jesus in how you live. So let me talk to the men in the room. Guys, it is really easy to say that no one knows the decisions that you're making in business, that you could just go and do it and it'll be okay. It's really easy to 
Say that no one knows about what's going on inside your own home, in your marriages, in your relationships. That no one knows what's happening when you're by yourself and you're drinking one too many or you're looking at stuff that you shouldn't be. Men, how about we guard our hearts with integrity? And we invite Jesus to come and to cover us, to protect us from the attachments that want to come at us. How about we live like Jesus at all times, even when no one's watching, with integrity, and we reflect that to the world. We take on the belt of truth. Truth means the sincerity and integrity that is free from from deceit. You know, the belt holds everything up in armor, Uh, If your belt's not put on properly, your pants are going to fall down. Like your sword's going to weigh too much. It's going to be bad. Married friends, how about we make sure that we're putting on truth in our relationships? Let truth be the thing that guides your marriage. Have integrity with how you relate with each other. Again, not living the, well... What happens at home stays at home. Don't make excuses for how you're treating your spouse or how they're treating you. But live in a way that is free from anything hidden, from any sort of deceit. Allow that to guide your marriages. When you have put on shoes that are prepared with the good news of peace. Prepare to bring the good news of the Prince of Peace to those around you. You know, all day, every day, you are surrounded by people who need to know who the Prince of Peace is because he's radically different than anything that they've ever experienced. And so before you leave your house, are you making sure that you're ready? Before you take out the trash and you encounter a neighbor, are you sure that you're ready? Before you walk your dog, before you go for a bike ride, before you go to work, whatever it is, be ready to bring the good news of the Prince of Peace to your neighbor across the street whose marriage is struggling. Be ready to bring the good news of the Prince of Peace to the neighbor down the road whose life looks perfect and you're like, I don't know what they could need. Be ready to bring the good news of the Prince of Peace to the person uh, who, who doesn't want to talk about it. Be ready to bring the good news of the Prince of Peace because each and every person that you come in contact with desperately needs to know who Jesus is and the love that he has for them. And that following him is going to bring peace and joy and hope and love. And it's going to change things. And then we take up the shield of faith. The image that Paul's giving us here is of a wooden shield. Because wooden shields were soaked in water before they were picked up so that when somebody shot an arrow that was on fire at you, it would sizzle and not catch. Soaked, saturated with faith. Faith is a strong conviction that Jesus is the one who brings salvation. A strong conviction in Jesus. So to those of us in the room who struggle to believe, who feel like you don't have a strong conviction in who Jesus is, because life's been hard or because you can't see Jesus, uh, 
because other intelligent people don't believe? Because church people are stupid sometimes and we do bad things? And you've seen it one too many times? For so many different reasons, protect yourself with faith. Allow it to soak and to saturate, to drench you. Allow Jesus to be the bringer of salvation. That's not your job. Your job is simply just to be open and to say, okay, I'm willing to try, but you're the one who has to come and meet me in that. And if you're willing to truly say that, to say, I'm willing to try, I can guarantee that he will come and meet you in the middle of it. Because that's what he loves to do. And then we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is what it says. Spirit and Word, the words here are pneuma and rhema. The breathed Word of God and the written and spoken Word of God. Both are necessary, is what we're being told here. It's a double-edged sword. And it's the weapon of the Prince of Peace, which means that it does not bring death, but it actually brings life. It doesn't kill, it reignites. It renews, it restores. The Holy Spirit is one side, and the Holy Spirit comes and fills us with life and connects us to the Father and reminds us who Jesus is and shows us the truth. And the Bible's on the other side, and the Bible fills us with life and shows us what it looks like to live a life reflecting Jesus. It reminds us of who Jesus is and what he said and what he did and what he's going to come and do. And it convicts our hearts and it reminds us of the truth. We need both of those to be life bringers to those around us. Allow that to be the thing that you go forward with. You're armed and you're ready with a life bringing sword, not a weapon of death. Friends, what I love about this is that if we allow this to sink in, if we allow these characteristics of Jesus and who Jesus wants us to be, to be the things that guide us and that lead us, we will be transformed. We will quite literally be the light in the darkness because we'll be reflecting Jesus in the middle of dark things around us. And we're called to be that as followers of Jesus. And so this Advent, my invitation for us is to suit up, hopefully not in one of the childish sized ones, but to let the Prince of Peace lead us into the darkness. <laughs>